are unmuted. Good afternoon and welcome to the October 3rd, 2023 meeting of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Madam Clerk, would you please call the roll? Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Chan. Present. Chan present. Supervisor Dorsey. Present. Dorsey present. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio present. Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman present. Supervisor Melgar. Melgar present. Supervisor Peskin. Present. Peskin present. Supervisor Preston. Preston present. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan present. Supervisor Safai. Present. Safai present. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie present. And Supervisor Walton. Walton present. Mr. President, all members are present. Thank you, Madam Clerk. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors acknowledges we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Colleagues, please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all. Madam Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, the Board of Supervisors welcomes the public to attend this meeting in person here in the Legislative Chamber, room 250 within City Hall on the second floor. To participate remotely, this meeting is airing live on SFGOV-TV's Channel 26, or you may view the live stream at www.sfgovtv.org. The telephone number and the meeting ID are published on the agenda and streaming on your television or computer screen. And as always, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and on Tuesdays until the end of this meeting, the clerk's office is proudly answering our phones. To assist you, call 415 415- 554-5184. If you'd like to send your written comments, send to the members of the Board of Supervisors using a stamped envelope to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, the number one, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102, or you may send an email to bos at sfgov.org. We offer interpretation assistance in Chinese, Filipino, and Spanish beginning at 3 p.m. Between 3 and 7 p.m. we'll have that service. Mr. President, that concludes my uh, communication. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Would you please read the consent agenda? Items 1 through 21 are on consent. These items are considered to be routine unless a member objects. An item may be removed and considered separately. Would any member or members like an item or items severed from the consent agenda, seeing no names on the roster, a roll call, please? On items 1 through 21, Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safai. Safai, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. 
Walton, I. Supervisor Chan. Chan, I. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, I. Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman, I. And Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, I. There are 11 ayes. Those ordinances are passed on first reading, finally passed, and resolutions adopted. Next item, please. Item 22, this is an ordinance to amend the planning code to reduce inclusionary housing program requirements, including the requirement for projects approved under the Housing Opportunities Means Equity, the San Francisco Home SF program, and to affirm the CEQA determination and to make the appropriate findings. Roll call. On item 22, Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. No. Preston, no. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safaghi. Safaghi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. And Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. There are 10 ayes and one no, with Supervisor Preston voting no. That ordinance is finally passed. Next item, please. Items. Actually, could you read 23 and 24 together? Uh, yes, items 23 and 24 comprise two retroactive resolutions that authorize the adult probation to accept and expend two grants for the following purposes. Item 23 authorizes $500,000 in a grant from the Board of State and Community Corrections for the Mobile Probation Service Center's grant program funded through the Budget Act of 2022 through September 30th, 2027. And item 24 authorizes a $100,000 grant from the California Emergency Management Agency for Probation Specialized Supervision Program federally funded through the Violence Against Women Act uh, uh, for the term through September 30th, 2023. Roll call. On items 23 and 24, Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safaghi. Safaghi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. Chan, I, Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I, Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, I, Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman, I, and Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, I. There are 11 ayes. Those resolutions are adopted. Next item, please. Item 25, resolution to reauthorize the Public Utilities Commission's Cost for Clean Power SF's participation in a joint powers authority consisting of community choice aggregators with a not to exceed amount of approximately 4.7 million for a duration of 25 years through December 31st, 2048. Same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 26, resolution to approve the terms and conditions and to authorize the execution of the no-cost project-specific maintenance agreement with the State of California Department of Transportation for San Francisco Public Utilities Commission's ongoing maintenance of its proposed improvements at 18 locations within Caltrans right-of-way along a six-mile section of State Route 35 south of State Route 92 in San Mateo County uh, for Southern Skyline Boulevard Ridge Trail Extension. 
Same House, same call. The resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, could you please read items 27 through 29 together? Items 27 through 29 comprise three retroactive authorizations for the Office of the District Attorney. Item 27, accept, accept and expends a $1 million grant from the California Department of Insurance for the Workers' Compensation Insurance Fraud Program uh, for the grant period July 1st, 2023 through June 30th, 2024. Item 28 renews the current agreement with the California Victim Compensation Board, an agent of the state of California, for a revolving fund of 75000 to establish a process to pay expenses on an emergency basis when the claimant would suffer substantial hardship if the payment was not made, term through June 30th, 2026. And item 29, this item authorizes a $91,000 grant uh, uh, and uh, an additional grant for a complete total of 275000 from the California Victim Compensation Board for the period through June 30th, 2026, and to continue the criminal restitution compact should the parties agree to an amendment as allowed under the provisions of the grant agreement. Same house, same call. The resolutions are adopted. Next item, please. Item 30, this is a resolution to retroactively authorize the Department of Public Health to accept and expend an approximate $28,000 grant increase from the National Institutes of Health through Oregon Health and Science University to participate in a program entitled Western States Node of the National Drug Abuse Treatment Clinical Trials Network for a total grant award of a, approximately $110,000 through February 29, 20, uh, 2024. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 31, resolution to authorize the Department of Adult Probation to accept and expend a $100,000 grant from the California Emergency Management Agency for Probation Specialized Supervision Program, federally funded through the Violence Against Women Act uh, through September 30th, 2024. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 32, resolution to express the Board of Supervisors' concern regarding the development of the United Nations activation plan and displacement of the heart of the city farmer's market from the UN Plaza, urging the Recreation and Park Department to adopt mitigations requested by the farmer's market and to urge the Recreation and Park Department to provide information to the public and to the Board of Supervisors regarding the pilot activation plan. Seeing no names on the roster, same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, can we go to committee reports, item 34? Yes, item 34. This item was considered by the Homelessness and Behavioral Health Select Committee at a special meeting on Friday, September 29th, and was forwarded as a committee report. Item 34 is a resolution to authorize and approve the Director of Property on behalf of the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to negotiate and enter into a sublease agreement for 312,000 square feet of property owned by the California State Lands Commission and leased to the California Department of Parks and Recreation for the city's continued use as the Bayview Vehicle Triage Center at Candlestick Point State Recreation Area for a term of two years uh, for a base rent of 312000 per year and to affirm the sequent determination. 
seeing no names on the roster, same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, let's go to roll call for introductions. First supervisor up to introduce new business is uh, President Peskin. Thank you, Clerk Calvio. Colleagues, I will submit my legislation and first would like to adjourn today's board meeting in the memory of a fierce, fierce champion for the South of Market community, especially the Soma youth and their families. Tim Figueres passed last month, leaving a gaping hole in the Soma and Filipino communities. Tim was raised in San Francisco, attended San Francisco schools, making him an exemplar of homegrown leadership. A proud SF State graduate, he was the recreation director of the Gene Friend Rec Center up until his retirement in 2016. Tim worked in SOMA for more than three decades and was part of the original staff of the Gene Friend Rec Center when it opened in 1990, helping to coach the youth baseball and basketball teams. He worked hard to encourage youth to participate in sports as an alternative to the negative behaviors found all around them and to promote health and safety in SOMA. Tim fought tirelessly to advocate for funding to ensure that low-income youth had access to funds for registration fees for the equipment needed to play ball, even supporting a few into professional sports. When the Recreation and Parks Department said there was not enough youth in SOMA to justify the use of Victoria Manalo Drave Park uh, for their Little League field, uh, for actual Little League, Tim fought to fund and organize the SOMA Sluggers, helping to secure a dog fence around the field and a state-of-the-art batting cage uh, or batting cages, which you will recall were dedicated to him on June 8, 2017. Whether it was decorating the Gene Friend Rec Center as Santa's workshop during the holidays or as a fun-filled haunted house at Halloween, Tim loved the children at Bessie Carmichael and in the local after-school programs and would do uh, pretty much anything for them, even stringing up Christmas lights. My deepest condolences go out to his wife, June, and their two sons. Never underestimate the power of a community-based rec and park staffer who can transform the lives of so many young people. Tim certainly did. And now, colleagues, uh, I would like to request that we adjourn today's board meeting on behalf of the entire Board of Supervisors in the memory of a legendary San Franciscan, our late U.S. Senator, the Honorable Diane Feinstein. From her relentless work on gun control to her contributions to the women's and civil rights movements, the impact of her profound legacy on this city, our state, and our country for over a half a century cannot be understated. As the former president of this body and as mayor, Senator Feinstein presided over San Francisco uh, in what was truly its darkest hour, with a steady guiding hand and a deep love for San Francisco. From restoring the city's beloved cable cars to establishing a framework for competent, effective governance, she ultimately led the way for San Francisco and California in the Senate, and for women. I believe that in 1991, the year she was elected to the United States Senate, there were only two women serving in that 100-member chamber. We've all seen the news footage of a shocked Diane Feinstein addressing the press on the stairs outside after finding Supervisor Milk and Mayor Moscone's bodies as she announced the double hom homicide. Her stunned face in those images was stretched with pain and disbelief that everybody in San Francisco felt and that some of us remember. But she quickly moved forward with a clear, determined vision for action. She had already broken the glass ceiling by becoming the first female president of this board, 
but then became the city's first female mayor and later became the first woman to sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee, the first woman chair of the Senate Rules and Administration Committee, and the first woman chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, where she made history for her probe of the CIA's enhanced interrogation program, a seven-year project that uncovered the truth about the CIA's inefficient and needlessly brutal torture program at secret detention sites operating outside of the law. One of her self-professed proudest moments that I know we are all proud of was also passing the assault weapons ban in 1994, where her steely nerve and cool-headedness under pressure was brought to the forefront when Republican colleagues patronized her legislative attempts, citing her need to familiarize herself with the Constitution and firearms in general. She curtly responded, and she was capable of a curt response, Senator, I've been on this committee for 20 years. I was mayor for nine years. I walked in. I saw people shot. I've looked at bodies that have been shot with these weapons, she said, noting the legislation exempted over 2,000 types of weapons. It's fine you want to lecture me on the Constitution. Just know I've been here for a long time. While this woman towered over many historic firsts in her legacy, in Washington is unparalleled. As many of, of, of us said, uh, and I heard this repeatedly from all sorts of people, she really never stopped being mayor of San Francisco. And I think that's truly what has stood out to me in the hours since the announcement of her passing. Her way of governing, her attention to detail, her ability to truly operate from the center of the aisle as a place of convening opposing sides. It wasn't just her ability to keep her cool, it was her level of care to the details that everyday San Franciscans experience that helped knit the city back together after the assassinations, after Jonestown, after social upheaval, and truly very, very dark, tumultuous times. She often acknowledged that in order to preserve and respect San Francisco's diversity, the center lane was the best way she could be a fulcrum and balance so many competing needs, which was really what San Francisco needed at that time. Sheriff Mike Hennessy said it well in David Talbot's recent New York Times profile. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but if you don't, look it up. Uh, and I quote, Diane Feinstein was the best because she took responsibility for San Francisco, a very hard city to run. It's very politically fractious. It takes a lot of work to hold it together, and that's exactly what she did. She demanded excellence from every city employee, and no job was too big or too small for her to model for the rest of the city's workforce, whether it was giving mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation to someone on the street or pulling over to pick up trash. Diane was truly engaged, present, and extremely focused. She last proudly graced these chambers uh, in October of 2016 when we celebrated the 100th anniversary of City Hall. It's a day that I will never forget, and those of you who were here will never forget. Um, on behalf of the Board of Supervisors, our collective condolences to her daughter Catherine, son-in-law Rick, and granddaughter Eileen. Um, and uh, now I'd like to open the floor to any of you who would like to offer your own memories or words uh, of former board president, mayor, and United States Senator Dianne Feinstein. Supervisor Chan. 
Thank you, President Peskin. Just uh, wanted to briefly thank you so much for your remarks. And so I just wanted to briefly add, as a first-generation immigrants to San Francisco, um, the late senator fought to preserve San Francisco as a sanctuary city, uh, really protecting everyone here living in the city. Doesn't matter your um, our immigration status. Um, so just really want to be expressing my gratitude. Uh, to her legacy um, and her work, but truly that she left behind a legacy in her daughter, also former Superior Court Judge in San Francisco Fire Commission President Catherine Feinstein. So um, just want to express that my heart and prayers are with Commission President Feinstein, her family, and loved ones today. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, President Peskin, and I want to compliment you on a um, powerful and well-written um, eulogy for the senator. I had the opportunity to meet uh, Diane Feinstein when I first came to San Francisco. My first job out of college was working on a statewide campaign in 1990 when she was uh, the Democratic nominee for governor. Um, among the many glass ceilings she broke was she was um, the first major party nominee to be a woman for governor. And while she lost that election, um, as fate would have it, two years later, I was part of a political consulting team that was uh, instrumental in her successful 1992 bid for U.S. Senate, another groundbreaking um, effort. Um, over the years, I have um, cherished my opportunities to work with Senator Feinstein and her office. She was somebody I admired even when I disagreed with her. Um, she had backbone, and um, I think uh, your words, President Peskin, are very fitting for a remarkable leader. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Supervisor Safai. Thank you, uh, President Peskin. Thank you for your wonderful words on behalf of the board. I just will add that I was, had the great pleasure of meeting the senator on a few occasions. One time uh, when I was first elected, we happened to be in, in D.C. for the Conference of Mayors and I got a chance to thank her personally for her support on my campaign which was a very close and hard-fought campaign, so her support absolutely helped to make a difference. And then the last time I was able to spend with her was more recently when uh, President Biden uh, was not the president, but he was Senator Biden running for president. She was always so gracious, uh, thinking about other elected officials, um, inviting us to her home. Uh, Supervisor Stephanie and I were there that day, got a chance to, to meet him and, and spend a little time with her. And one of the things I... I really appreciated about her leadership um, as a public servant is that in her heart she was always the mayor of San Francisco and when she came back in town she let it be known to whomever was in uh, room 200 uh, that that was where her heart was and that's where her attention lay when she was in town and so I, I definitely appreciated that about her and her care and her love for San Francisco thank you and may she rest in peace thank you Supervisor Safai, Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, President Peskin. Thank you for your amazing words. Um, I just held on to all of them. And thank you for the flower display and the beautiful picture of Senator Feinstein in these chambers. Um, I think Madam Clerk, um, just always first class. Thank you so much. Um, I, you know, I woke up on Friday morning to a text from Supervisor Mandelman that said, OMG. And I immediately panicked and then turned on the TV and was just devastated. Um, 
Senator Feinstein was near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm lucky that I was able to call her my mentor. I worked on her campaign in 1990 for governor when I was at St. Mary's College and was here in San Francisco at the Fairmont the night that we unfortunately did not win. Um, but just to know that my path led me to her, and I'll never forget, I've told this story several times, and I told it to Senator Feinstein um, in March of 2018. That was right after the Parkland shooting where... Um, High school students were, of course, murdered in their school with someone with a gun, easy access to an assault rifle. And she was here in Civic Center Plaza with all the youth that had organized. We had a huge rally. I think several of you might have been there. And my son was with me. I went up to um, Senator Feinstein at the time, and I just thanked her profusely for all the work she's done on gun violence prevention and how she continues to let, never let the issue go. And at that moment in time, um, she grabbed my hands and said to me, thank you for your work, and um, in, endorsed me on the spot for um, my campaign for supervisor at the time. And my daughter Gianna was, I think, 10 years old at the time. And when I told Senator Feinstein that story, I said, describing to Gigi what it that felt like was like if Gigi were at a Taylor Swift concert and Taylor Swift bent down to her and said, you're a great singer. Um, and when I told Senator Feinstein that, she just laughed, but um, that's what it felt like to me, to have my idol, my mentor, um, someone I'd looked up to for such a long time, um, thank me for my work was amazing. And she, you know, she was a woman of so many firsts, like Super President Peskin said, first woman president of the Board of Supervisors, first woman mayor of San Francisco, first woman senator of... California alongside Senator Barbara Boxer, and she was the first woman ranking member of three Senate committees, the Senate Judiciary, Rules and Administration, and the Intelligent Committee. Uh, Senator Feinstein served as a beacon of inspiration for countless women leaders, lighting the way with her generous mentorship to so many, and um, Mayor Libby Schaff from um, Oakland, um, former Mayor Libby Schaff, also weighed on, weighed in on, weighed on this as well. Um, even as she soared to the highest echelons of the federal government, she generously shared her wisdom with women leaders, um, including me, to lift up our work and our voices. She taught me and so many others that women belong in the political arena and encouraged us to persevere in tackling seemingly insurmountable issues such as the scourge of gun violence in America. She bravely took on our national gun industry by leading on instituting an assault weapons ban after the 101 California shooting here in San Francisco. Senator Feinstein's legacy is a testament to the notion that one can be simultaneously unwavering, impassioned, and compassionate. She taught us all how to swing back to opposition with grace and dignity, even when others deliver low blows. Unswayed by the shifting tides of public opinion, she remained resolute in her pursuit of meaningful action and tangible results. She successfully passed critical legislation to address violence against women from gun violence to sex trafficking. She was a huge advocate for domestic violence victims, reauthorizing and extending the Violence Against Women Act until 2027, which supports a nationwide network of community response to domestic violence, dating violence, sexual assault, and stalking. Her resilience and unwavering commitment to serving others were evident throughout her career. In the wake of the tragic assassinations of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk in 1978, 
she provided our shaken city with much needed stability as its first female mayor. Her devotion to our city, our state, and our nation will endure through her myriad of accomplishments in the countless lives her tireless work touched and improved and saved. I will be forever grateful for her public service to our city, state, and country, as well as forever thankful personally for her mentorship and friendship. I um, read the book um, about her, Never Let Them See You Cry, and I have to admit that I couldn't help but shed a few tears myself upon hearing of her passing. May her memory be a blessing, and may it inspire us all to keep up the fight. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Supervisor Walton. Thank you, President Peskin, and thank you so much for that in memoriam in honor of Senator Feinstein. I just want to say that, one, she was a true trailblazer and really demonstrated the fact that no matter what gender you were, you could be successful in the political arena. And when she first got elected to the Senate to be able to hold that seat for over 30 years and be able to accomplish many firsts, even on the Senate floor, uh, as she did prior to her arrival in the, in the Senate, was something, uh, nothing less than amazing. So I want to just send my condolences to her family, thank her so much for all of her service for all of us here in not only the state of California, but across this country. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Supervisor Mandelman. Thank you, uh, President Peskin, and um, thank you uh, for your words. Thank you to our amazing clerk and your team for um, uh, the beautiful um, redo of the, of the chamber in, uh, in Senator Feinstein's honor. Um, I did not, unlike some of you, I did not have a know or have a personal relationship with um, with Diane Feinstein. But I do remember and and recall her as this important, strong presence in the in the 80s. And the 1984 presidential election was the first presidential election that I sort of was paying attention to as a kid. And there was a tiny, tiny handful of women in the United States who, uh, Walt, who, um, uh, who Mondale could have chosen. And you, know, you can name them on like one hand. Um, Jerry Ferrari, Ferraro got it, but Pat Schroeder, Diane Feinstein, it was like a small, small list. And I, we still don't, we do not have gender parity on this board. We do not have gender parity in politics. It is still harder to be a woman in politics than to be a man in politics, all else being uh, equal. Um, but to be one of those first women to find yourself in the position of being mayor of San Francisco or in Congress um, and the changes that they wrought um, were truly extraordinary. And I think uh, her, her impact just in being having the courage to be one of those first people through the door um, as a gay man is something that I um, am very grateful for. The queer community had a complicated relationship with Dianne Feinstein. She was one of the first uh, straight candidates to campaign in the community. She was uh, stellar in her response to the HIV AIDS crisis, but um, there were also moments when the community uh, clashed um, with with uh, with the former senator, um, but at the end of the day, in the work that she did to move women's rights forward and and LGBT rights forward, um, I think can't 
cannot be overestimated. And um, so um, I'm glad that we're taking a moment to acknowledge her important role. Thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, Supervisor Engardio. So I never had the chance to meet Senator Feinstein. I wish I could have, uh, but as the newest member of this board, I feel her influence every time I walk the grand staircase, and I always walk the stairs, and I feel her influence when I sit here in this seat. Uh, I worked many years as a journalist. I'm a student of history, so I understand the impact that she's had on this city, and not just our city, but the state and the nation. And um, it's why whenever I do, give a tour of school kids, uh, her statue, her bust over on the other side of the city hall is always on the list. And I always gather the kids around her statue and talk about what she did. Uh, and I'll continue to do that. It'll have even more meaning now um, because we want to keep her memory alive and her legacy alive. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Engardio. Supervisor Preston. Thank you, President Peskin. I want to join in your in memoriam and thank you for your remarks. Um, and colleagues have spoken to many specific um, accomplishments. I, I did want to just share a personal uh, story. I uh, did not uh, have a chance to meet uh, Senator Feinstein personally. I did, upon taking office uh, in December uh, 2019, um, receive a handwritten uh, letter from her that was one of the kindest um, welcomes to public service um, that I received, if not the kindest, which I was really struck by at the time, especially um, as those who know me as a democratic socialist, I have a slightly different brand of politics than the late uh, Senator Feinstein, and I was uh, struck by her kindness and graciousness um, in reaching out and her respect really for the offices that we all hold, whether or not uh, we agree on on all issues, so that's always really stuck with me. Um, I want to extend my condolences to Senator Feinstein's family and loved ones, and may she rest in peace. Thank you, Supervisor Preston. Supervisor Melgar. Thank you, uh, President Peskin, uh, for the wonderful tribute. Uh, thank you, Clerk Davio, for um, doing what you've done and making sure that we honor her in these chambers. Uh, where she was so important. Um, I just thank you to all my colleagues and thank you Supervisor Stephanie for that very moving and thorough tribute. Um, I'm not gonna add to uh, what you've said uh, except for two things. Uh, one is I wanna acknowledge that what um, the style that Senator Feinstein was so uh, well known for and criticized for in these uh, past few years was that ability to talk to others who disagreed with her. And I think that that is something that is sorely lacking uh, in our country uh, right now uh, when people have become so polarized and when uh, the media has um, exploited that to stir up fear and hatred in this country. Um, she was also a Jewish woman uh, who, uh, you know, we, we're kind of used to discussing things, you know, uh, ad nauseum until we get to a consensus. And I think that that is something she embodied. Um, and I think we, uh, we, will, we will miss that um, in our body politic um, in this country. Um, like Supervisor Stephanie, um, I feel like uh, the late senator supported me in my uh, political career 
just when I needed her. And so I uh, am grateful for that. Uh, and I know that, uh, like with many other women, she paved the way. And she also individually helped many women uh, to uh, be leaders um, and part forge the path forward. So uh, may, may her memory be a blessing. And um, thank you, late Senator Feinstein. Thank you, Supervisor Melgar, Supervisor Ronan. Thank you to everyone here for such beautiful words. Um, I also did not know the senator personally, um, but she certainly has played an enormous role um, in this state, in this city, um, and in this country throughout my entire life. Uh, she even came to my elementary school in Los Angeles when I was a little kid. Uh, so she has definitely been a larger than life figure uh, for as long as I can remember, and uh, I wish um, uh, her family much love and, and my condolences, and may she rest in peace. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Ronan. And in addition to, as many of you have, thanking our clerk, Angela Calvillo, who came in here this weekend, uh, I wanted to acknowledge and thank two of her staff, Eileen McHugh and Erica Major, for uh, preparing the board chambers and also acknowledge the Recreation and Parks Department uh, that provided us uh, with no small effort the city flower for the last 97 years, the Dahlia, uh, up here. Um, so thank you one and all with that. And, and, uh, and Mr. President, yes, if I could, the one name I didn't give you was former clerk of the board, Kay Golbengay. And Kay Golbengay, who is always there in a pinch. Thank you, Kay. Um, someday I'll tell the story about what happened when she was acting clerk. Uh, with that, Madam Clerk, why don't we go to our 2.30 special order of commendation, starting with District 5, Supervisor Preston. Thank you, uh, President Peskin um, and colleagues today. I am thrilled to recognize the 50th anniversary of the Japanese Cultural and Community Center of Northern California, uh, a community institution that has served the Japantown neighborhood and the Japanese American community for decades. I see some folks rising, feel free, uh, Paul Osaki and others to come on up, uh, and, um, but I'm gonna say a few words first. Um, the, the center was conceived in the 1960s um, at the outset of the redevelopment era. Advocates recognized that there were nonprofits and service providers supporting community initiatives, but the Japantown neighborhood lacked a central location for people and organizations to gather, and not only gather, but to take pride in and create community. While the center was incorporated in 1973, it took a massive fundraising effort to create the physical space we know and love, the first phase of which was completed in 1986. Initially focused on providing rental space to community-serving organizations, a young upstart named Paul Osaki knew the center needed something more. Brought on as the inaugural program director in 1988, Osaki had a vision to make the center a place where people host meetings, gather for activities, and to learn more about Japanese heritage and the Japanese American experience. 
Paul, whose father Wayne designed the center, originally planned to stay for one year. That was 33 years ago. And since then, Paul has served as the executive director and as the beating heart of the center. It would be impossible to list out the countless ways the center has served as a community hub, but I'll do my best to name a few that I feel are representative of the center's spirit. The center has been in integral in cultivating the strong relationship between San Francisco and our sister cities in Japan. After the Great Henshin earthquake devastated the Osaka-Kobe area, the center and community responded by raising over $600,000 in direct relief for victims of the tragedy. This spirit of mutual aid continued in 2011 after the devastating events of the Great East Japan earthquake, a tsunami, and the Fukushima nuclear disaster. The center helped raise more than $4 million in relief and was recognized as one of the biggest contributors to relief efforts. And I'd like to recognize and acknowledge, I believe Deputy Counsel uh, Kishimori uh, is here with us today. The international reach of the center has been on display, particularly as the pandemic pushed some programming to be offered remotely. This has allowed the center to reach participants in 34 different states and five continents. Closer to home, the center has stepped up and worked closely with my office to host community events, including a tenant rights training and more recently a town hall public safety meeting. Among the many incredible community-serving uh, programs, the center hosts a nutritious, well-balanced, Japanese-style uh, hot lunch five days a week for seniors in need. We have seen Japantown not only navigate the pandemic, but become a citywide leader in post-pandemic response. We know that the center has played an integral role in that success, and we appreciate your efforts to protect and preserve the community. As the representative here in City Hall of Japantown on this board, I've seen how important the center has been to preserving and promoting the Japanese-American cultural and historical heritage, serving as an anchor to the oldest Japantown in the nation. And while Paul Osaki will always be the first to, cr to credit the community and other community leaders and the staff, I want to specifically recognize Paul's incredible leadership of the center and thank him for always leading with courage, integrity, and commitment to the Japantown community, the entire Japanese-American community, and the entire city and county of San Francisco. There is no question that the center would not be where it is today without your vision and leadership. So on behalf of the Board of Supervisors, I want to congratulate the Japanese Cultural and Community Center of Northern California again on this 50th anniversary, and wish the center many more years of success as a thriving and crucial community institution. And for those who are interested, uh, the center is having its 50th anniversary celebration this Saturday, October 7th from 2 to 5 p.m. I will be there. 
uh, and I hope to see you all there. So uh, without further ado, congratulations, and Mr. Osaki, the floor is yours. Thank you, Supervisor Preston. Thank you very much for those kind, um, not as well-deserved words as you said, but thank you very much. Um, before I begin, I'd like to also um, uh, pay my respects and condolences to all of you at the passing of Senator Dianne Feinstein. My political campaign career began with her recall campaign, actually, as mayor, um, where my mother was her director of volunteers. And she went on to work for Mayor Feinstein throughout her tenure as her director of finance for her health department. So I had the opportunity to get to know her growing up. My favorite memory was when the San Francisco 49ers won their first Super Bowl. So I got the, to be in room 200 in the mayor's office, but I couldn't get to the balcony because all the dignitaries were out there. And she saw me sitting in the back and she called me and said, Paul, do you like to come out on the balcony? So I got to go out on the balcony and that was my favorite memory of, of, of um, when uh, her as mayor. So my condolences. Um, thank you very much for um, having us here. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary and as Supervisor Preston said, you know, we have about 187,000 people who come through our doors for social services, for recreation and programs and classes. But I, I, I need to re remind that, you know, the community center came out of the destruction of Japantown. You know, when the center was being conceived and when I was growing up in Japantown, it was flat. You know, the blocks were dirt surrounded by chain link fences. The reason why there's a community center is because the community pushed back on a redevelopment agency and said, you have to leave us something. And so they left land, decided to build a community center. Typical redevelopment though, we had to buy it back after they took our land. We had to buy it back. And the reason, and it's in their minutes that they allowed this was so that the Japanese American community had a place to come back to. Sounds nice, but actually what it means is they knew that there was nothing left for us to come back to. Looks nice with restaurants and businesses, but what you won't find there are Japanese, Japanese Americans living there anymore. Um, and I don't want to go into the whole story of redevelopment because a lot of you know that, but um, along with the, the, the black community in Western Edition A1, a2 was the, the Japanese community, and almost 5,000 uh, were forced out um, of their homes and living there. So, you know, we, 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 are, we celebrate, you know, our 50th anniversary, but we're reminded why we're there and that we're still there and that we are a focal point that brings people back to Japantown, not just of um, Japanese ancestry, but um, we're welcome to, to everybody. And we're the largest um, Japanese uh, American-owned facility in Northern California and have been graced uh, with visits by the Emperor and Empress of Japan. Uh, two prime ministers of Japan have visited us. Um, Chipper Gore, Secretary of Commerce Ron Brown, uh, Secretary Norminetta, I mean a whole host of people uh, Assemblyman Filting learned how to play basketball there. City Attorney David Chu played volleyball there. Jane Kim, you know, so we, we, we've um, really have been um, blessed with uh, the people that have come by and have been part of our, our family. And so I want to thank you and 
you're welcome to always come by, visit us, tour the facility. We have some exciting things that are gonna be happening next year with a whole new educational uh, wing that we're gonna be developing that we'll be sure to share with, uh, with all of you. Um, we have um, just some information on our 50th anniversary um, of a newspaper and a newsletter. And then we also have our 50th anniversary t-shirt, which is under the limit of uh, gifts. So we'd like to present that to, to all of you. And again, thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, Paul. Good to see you. Next up is District 9 Supervisor Hillary Ronan. Thank you, President Peskin. And if Bill Hirsch will come to the front, please. Thank you so much, colleagues. Today I am so excited to honor the magnificent Bill Hirsch, who is about to enter into his incredibly uh, well-deserved retirement. Bill is an inspiring member of our community who has led the fight for legal and political representation for many underserved communities. He has successfully created safe spaces for those who need it within our punitive and often unforgiving legal system. After graduating from Golden Gate University's law school, Bill worked nonstop and tirelessly on issues ranging from mental health to HIV AIDS advocacy, demonstrating his intense passion for bettering our world. In addition to serving as a welfare rights attorney and organizing for unhoused San Franciscans, Bill was a directing attorney for the Mental Health Advocacy Project of the Santa Clara County Bar Association, Bar Association Law Foundation. He then went on to direct the Mental Health Association of San Francisco, an organization dedicated to fighting stigma and discrimination in mental health and creating change in community, public perception, and ultimately public policy. The Mental Health Association uh, also provides free mental health services to residents in need. During his tenure at the organization, Bill coordinated advocacy to increase affordable housing for those suffering with mental health disorders. Bill was appointed by then Mayor Gavin Newsom to the San Francisco Long-Term Care Coordinating Council, advising the mayor and city on policy planning and service delivery for older adults and people with disabilities. At the council, Bill focused on issues such as assisted living, behavioral health, and social engagement. Bill also worked tirelessly for HIV AIDS advocacy, which has been and continues to be deeply stigmatized even in San Francisco. Bill has a leadership role as at the HIV AIDS Provider Network where he worked to ensure that the model of care for HIV AIDS in San Francisco truly met the needs of those impacted by it. But his noble and necessary fight did not just stop there. Bill has served as the Executive Director of the AIDS Legal Referral Panel, a legal organization that provides free legal aid for those affected by AIDS. 
ALRP provides legal assistance in 20 areas of law, including eviction, defense, immigration, real estate, and probate, healthcare, and more. Under Bill's thoughtful direction, ALRP expanded from serving just those in San Francisco General Hospital to serving clients in seven Bay Area counties. It's just extraordinary. Bill has shown future generations what it means to be a compassionate advocate and an innovative leader. He is a true San Franciscan champion for justice. It is not only a privilege, but in fact, a duty to honor Phil Hirsch, who uh, I will also say is a longtime resident of St. Mary's Park um, and who I've worked with uh, ever since I was a legislative aide on this board. So I'm gonna miss you in this role tremendously. While only a small gesture of appreciation after everything you have done, Bill, to better this world, we hold you in the highest esteem and thank you for all your incredibly, incredibly impactful work with and for our communities. Join me in giving a round of applause to Bill Hicks. And Bill, before you speak, I personally would like to associate myself with the comments of Supervisor Ronan and say that it has truly been a pleasure working with you uh, and trying to support your incredible work these many, many years. And I know that Supervisor Dorsey has some words he would like to add. I, I just want to express my appreciation to Supervisor Ronan for the, those such great remarks. I, I'm such a fan of uh, your organization and your work, and I only... You know, regret that I've only had a couple of opportunities to work with you during um, the budget process, but um, I just want to say congratulations and express my appreciation for your efforts to keep under wraps those photographs from the legal briefs underwear fashion show I participated in back in my youth when I was a little, little bit better shape. Um, but I just want to say uh, congratulations on your retirement. Thank you for everything that you have done for the HIV AIDS community. Thank you. Um, so thank you, Supervisor Ronan and members of the Board of Supervisors for this really wonderful honor. A hundred years ago when I was in law school, I interned for then Supervisor Harry Britt. Um, as a res that was back when being a member of the board was a part-time job and you had two aides. Um, I gained a deep appreciation for the work that you all do at City Hall and how deeply you care about this city. Um, the juxtaposition of this grand city hall and the severe suffering we see on the streets surrounding it has always been painful for me to observe. Um, as I step back from this role with the AIDS Legal Referral Panel, I will continue to be involved in social justice struggles. And um, thank you for giving me an opportunity to share with my son and my brother uh, some of the meaningful work that I've done for this city that I love so deeply. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And Madam Clerk, before our 3 p.m. special order, I believe we might have time to go to one more member for roll call. Yes, Supervisor Preston, new business. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, I, colleagues, I wanted to uh, share and, 
exciting update on our shared effort uh, to bring affordable housing to the DMV field office site uh, on Fell Street in my district. And you may recall this board unanimously adopted a resolution calling for this. Um, thank you for your support on that. Um, after more than a year of advocacy, the California Department of General Services uh, last Thursday uh, issued a request for housing developers to submit plans for a mixed-use development on the current DMV site on Fell Street, uh, paving the way for hundreds of new affordable homes to be constructed along with a revamped DMV field office. Um, this is a huge win uh, for affordable housing. Uh, together with Assemblymember Ting, uh, our offices uh, led the effort to convert this huge state-owned parking lot to affordable housing. It is, as I've said in the past, a perfect opportunity to go big on creating homes for working families uh, in, in uh, San Francisco. Um, in the resolution that we had at the board was in November 2022. Uh, it urged state officials to prioritize affordable housing on the DMV site. At the time, uh, you may recall that the state was actually preparing to redevelop the DMV field office, but without adding any housing on the site. Uh, this board went ahead and approved uh, the resolution unanimously, specifically calling for affordable housing to be, uh, to be on that site. Uh, since then, we've been working closely with Assemblymember uh, Ting and representatives from this uh, relevant uh, state agencies, that, uh, and that's specifically Department of General Services and the Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, in January, uh, after the resolution was introduced, DMV uh, released an RFI to gauge if there was interest out there for housing development um, on this lot, and there was a very positive response. Uh, my understanding, over over 10, more than 10 uh, different respondents expressing interest. Uh, we continued our discussions with state leaders, um, and uh, really just want to uh, thank them and appreciate the the ongoing dialogue uh, that's been occurring on this site. Uh, last week, we were thrilled that uh, DGS issued the request for qualifications, the RFQ, for affordable housing on this site. Um, respondents have until November 22nd of this year to submit uh, proposals, and we really want to encourage any affordable housing developers who might be listening to this um, to review the RFQ and consider applying. This is a great opportunity here. Um, I think as San Francisco takes on ambitious new targets for affordable housing that we've discussed extensively at this board, it makes perfect sense to prioritize publicly owned sites like the DMV property for housing that serves low-income San Franciscans and their families. Uh, I want to thank our state partners, particularly Assemblymember Phil Ting, um, DGS Director Ana Lasso, uh, DMV Director Steve Gordon, um, and uh, for each of the folks I just mentioned, their staff, their entire teams that have been involved in this effort, appreciate uh, everyone working collaboratively to realize this vision and take this step toward meeting our affordable housing goals here in the city. So thanks to everyone involved and the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Preston. Mr. President. Madam Clerk, could you please go to our 3 p.m. special order? Yes, the Board of Supervisors approved the board sitting as a committee of the whole uh, and continued that matter uh, from March 14th, 2023 to today for the members to hear and receive updates on the progress 
and implementation status of the United States Department of Justice recommendations regarding reforms within the police department scheduled pursuant uh, to a motion approved on September 15, 2020. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, we are now sitting as a committee of the whole to discuss the updates on the progress and implementation status of the U.S. Department of Justice's recommendations regarding reforms within the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, we will start with some opening remarks from Supervisor Walton, who has long uh, presided uh, over this issue, and then we have the Police Department here to present and report uh, with that, Supervisor Walton. Thank you so much, President Peskin, and I will keep my comments brief. As you all know, the assessment of the San Francisco Police Department was released on October 12, 2016, and the report highlighted 94 findings and 272 recommendations. Some of the recommendations have been completed, and the department continues to move forward on the, these recommendations. The purpose of this hearing is to hear updates on the progress the department is making towards the remaining recommendations. I would also be interested in hearing about the progress towards the strategies presented during the budget process. Thank you so much, President Peskin. I do not see Chief Scott, although I spoke to him the day before yesterday and he said he was going to be here at three, so I bet he is just about to walk in. It is 3.03 .03, and I heard from Ms. Aroche last evening and she also confirmed and they provided us with a PowerPoint collaborative reform in San Francisco, the path to sustainability, and there is Ms. Aroche just as I said that. Um, Diana, we are ready for your presentation. Thank you so much. Uh, good afternoon, members of the board, President Peskin, board members, uh, board of supervisors. Um, I, my name is Diana Oliva Rocha. I'm the Director of Policy and Public Affairs for the San Francisco Police Department. Um, we are almost ready, President Peskin. We apologize. Uh, as you know, we are preparing for tomorrow, and it's yeah. been somewhat of a busy day. The chief is actually walking into the chambers currently, and our consultant is right down the hall. Uh, okay. If it's okay with you, sir. Ms. Oroche, why don't we do this? We will just move along with our roll call for introductions, and when you are all gathered and present, we have called the item, and we will bring you up then. Perfect. Uh, Thank so you Madam so much. So, Madam Clerk, let's go back to roll call for introductions. Perfect. Certainly Thank you so much. Pleasure. And we apologize for no, any No worries. It is one of those weeks. Perfect. Supervisor Ronan, new business. Submit. Submit. Thank you. Supervisor Safai. Okay, thank you colleagues. Um, I rise to talk about one of the biggest challenges uh, facing our city, and many of you have been involved in this over the term of your time on the Board of Supervisors. I think collectively we've engaged on this, um, and that's around homelessness. And the city is backsliding on a key issue that we care deeply about and I think has been collectively successful, uh, a program that we know works to get people off of our streets and into permanent solutions. As some of you know, I worked with uh, Mayor Gavin Newsom and saw firsthand the benefits in, of a cost-effective program called Homeward Bound. Um, <clears throat> Homeward Bound reunifies homeless people with families, friends, and loved ones who can provide the needed support in an impactful program that allows uh, them to get back to their support network with loved ones. 
Um, yet this administration tried to sunset the program recently, um, back in March, and, and there was an op-ed that was done by an individual in the community, Eric Jay, and he called out the mayor's office and the mayor directly um, and had a press release that two days saying the program was, and then two days after that announcement, the program was restored. Uh, let's see the results from that time. Now, nearly seven months later, uh, the Department of Homeless Supportive Housing still says the program has ended on its website. Um, my understanding is that the Human Services Agency has picked this up, uh, but I think it's time to legislate it and put it into the code with one simple idea. If you come to San Francisco and things don't work out, um, of course, San Francisco will do everything we can to provide support, uh, but one of those mechanisms is helping people um, get back in touch with and have the transportation to get back with their loved ones and reunify them. We need to do that. After all, it's less expensive and, than many of the other interventions, and it frees up slots for those that are here that don't have that support uh, throughout uh, in, their, in their network. So I'm submitting a request today to the city attorney to draft a request uh, about the Hobart Prom program to make it a permanent part of our code and require that the city funding uh, agencies dealing with this program um, with homelessness makes its clients aware of the program and specify the agency in charge of determining eligibility and delivering results. And with that, um, oh, actually, is this today? I actually have an in memoriam as well. Colleagues, I'd like to adjourn today's hearing um, in memory request of artist Cooper Jr. who passed away on September 15th. Mr. Cooper moved to San Francisco with his wife Marion uh, Jean DeGray in 1957. He quickly became a very engaged member of his community and came to be known as Chief. He was an inspirational community member described as the unlucky boy who chose not to accept reality as his destiny, being a sharecropper's son with only a third grade education. He demonstrated his passion for education and his thirst for knowledge. Whenever he ran into something he didn't understand, he took a class either at Laneley College or City College. When drugs took presence in, in the life of some of his children, he took a drug dependency class because he said he needed to understand what was taking his children from him. As a result, he became a certified drug counselor. After coming across carpenters at work, he decided he wanted to learn the trade, so he took classes and became a carpenter. Mr. Cooper's other passion was getting people out to vote. He would often be seen in front of his church, St. John Missionary Baptist Church, during election time, urging people to get out to vote. He didn't consider himself political. He explained that he did this because he knew and always remembered the price which was paid for, and I quote, us as people to get the right to vote. That was his phrase, and he did not take that lightly. He truly was exemplary, and he all already and we already is deeply missed by his family and his community. May he rest in peace. And with that, colleagues, the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Supervisor Stephanie, submit. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Submit. Submit. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Submit. Thank you, Supervisor Dorsey. Submit, thank you, Supervisor Engardio. Submit, thank you, Supervisor Mandelman. Submit, thank you, and Supervisor Melgar. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, I am introducing two hearing requests today. Um, the first one, I'm uh, uh, submitting 
with uh, Supervisor Stephanie, um, and that is a hearing on the working conditions of mothers at the San Francisco Police Department. Our city is facing a public safety crisis and police staffing um, is one of our issues. I know my colleagues and I are all desperate for solutions to ensure that San Franciscans feel safe in all neighborhoods in our city. Each year we are losing many officers to retirement in other counties and our hiring process has not been able to keep up with the losses. One way to stop the bleeding of officers from our force and aid in the recruitment of new officers um, is to uh, ensure that serving uh, in our police works for all lifestyles. Unfortunately, serving as a public safety officer has not been working for women and particularly for mothers. Women are not promoted at the same rate as men in the force and working parents are often not given the opportunity to have a consistent schedule. So NBC recently reported on the inadequate policies of our police department and accommodations for lactating mothers. Mothers in the force often do not have access to adequate lactation rooms and many women are not entering the police force in the first place, also because of lack of access to childcare. In October of 2022, SFPD formally participated in a national campaign to increase women in policing, hosted by the National Association for Women in Law Enforcement Executives and the New York University Policing Project. The initiative's overall goal is to recruit 30% of women recruits by 2030, which is a goal that our chief has championed. Thank you, chief. Uh, in the past few months, my office has been working closely with Police Commissioner Walker, um, SFPD staff, the uh, Department of the Status of Women, uh, to discuss innovative strategies to recruit more women into the police force. So today, I am introducing a hearing request on the working conditions of mothers in, San in the San Francisco Police Department. And specifically, I am eager to hear about the access to childcare and lactation rooms for women in the police force. I think we, if we are able to rectify these gaps in service and inequity, we will be able to welcome countless more women into good union jobs in the city and empower women to start and grow their families in San Francisco. I also wholeheartedly believe that by cultivating a better working environment for women to join the force, it will help to build the culture change from within the department that has been part of our systemic reforms. The second hearing I'm introducing um, is uh, a request to explore another method to bring us closer to our Vision Zero goals. In 2014, uh, San Francisco adopted a Vision Zero policy. In the almost decade since adopting this policy, we have made very little progress in implementing the physical infrastructure needed for pedestrians, folks with disabilities, and bicycle riders across the country. One tool that we should be employing more is that we, uh, that we uh, could be employing more is, is daylighting of intersections. Across District 7 and across San Francisco, there are countless intersections that have very low visibility and a high risk to life and limb. In 2019, my uh, predecessor, uh, then President Norman Yee, passed legislation urging the SFMTA to include daylighting in 
every intersection in the high injury network in order to improve pedestrian safety where it is most needed. So today I am calling for a hearing on the progress of implementing daylighting since this legislation was passed in 2019. I look forward to hearing from the SFMTA on what daylighting has been completed, what still needs to be done, and the expected timeline of when it will be completed. Thank you, and the rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor. M Mr. President. Welcome, Chief Scott. I don't uh, know if you need Supervisor Walton to reiterate his initial opening comments or not. You just want to repeat those, Supervisor Walton? Sure. Thank you so much, President Peskin, and thank you so much, Chief Scott. Again, uh, as we're here because we know the assessment of the San Francisco Police Department was released on October 12th, 2016, and the report highlighted 94 findings and 272 recommendations. Some of those recommendations have been completed and the department continues to work on these recommendations. The purpose of today's hearing is to hear updates on the progress the department is making towards the remaining recommendations and also in hearing about the progress towards the strategies presented during the budget process. Thank you, Chief. Thank you, Supervisor Walton. Welcome, Chief Scott. I know it's a crazy week, so thank you for making time. Thank, thank you, President Peskin, and thank you, Supervisor Walton. Um, first of all, thank you to the board for giving us an opportunity to update you and the public on where we are on our collaborative reform initiative. A lot of work has been done, but we still have work to do. Um, I have the pleasure, or we have the pleasure, of having uh, Ms. Deborah Kirby from Jensen Hughes, formerly Hillard Hines, which is one of our um, independent reviewers along with the California Department of Justice, who also is an oversight partner on this project. Um, we're gonna start the presentation out by allowing uh, Ms. Kirby an opportunity to speak to give you her perspective on the work that we're doing, where we are, what remains to be done, and we will be here for answering whatever questions you may have or comments you may have after Ms. Kirby speaks, so thank you. Good afternoon, my name is Deborah Kirby and I have a PowerPoint presentation for the council. As Chief Scott identified, the reason that we're here today is to really talk about the pathway to reform in San Francisco and what has been known as collaborative reform. My company and I'm here because we were the original partners to this work when it was originated by the US Department of Justice in 2016. At that time, our work, we worked with almost 12 assessors looking through data over a period of six months, and we developed a report that was published in October 2016 that had 272 recommendations and over 94 findings distinct to those recommendations. When we talk about Jensen Hughes, what I want you to understand is that our company, um, formerly as Hillard Hines, is comprised of experts that have been on the front line of policing issues across the country. Uh, both as advocates, as executives within law enforcement organizations, and also as lawyers and people who are interested in criminal justice reform. Our company worked with the USDOJ, continues to do so under its current iteration of collaborative reform. We conducted the after-action assessment in Minneapolis following the George Floyd murder. We also conducted the after-action report in Louisville following the death of Brianna Taylor. 
And in California, we continue to work in multiple cities, including San Francisco, Bakersfield, um, Vallejo, and Torrance, to name a few. Next slide, please. In 2016, following a high-profile death of Mario Woods at the hands of a police use of force incident, then Chief Greg Sir and Mayor Lee asked the U.S. Department of Justice to come in and conduct an assessment of the organization. That, organ that assessment led to, as we've identified, a number of findings and recommendations based on where the department was at that time in its history. Um, and it was published with an intent to go forward with implementation under the direction of the U.S. Department of Justice and as agreed to by the city and the department. Next slide, please. When we talk about what that outcome was, it really was about what are some of the key issues in policing and those issues that we face today across the country and not just here in San Francisco. Where we looked at issues of use of force, bias in policing, community relations, organizational accountability, and personnel practices. And so those are the issues that we continue to see affect organizations in 2016 and today, almost seven years later. Next slide, please. The challenge that presented with the review of those areas was that the San Francisco Police Department had some gaps in its ability to assess and not only engage in the type of reform actions that were required. In 2018, independent of any actions by the department, the USDOJ withdrew its support of the COPS program as a result of a prerogative and a change in policing uh, focus by the then Republican administration. City leaders sought the support of the California Department of Justice in helping to move forward on its commitment to engaging in reform in San Francisco. The California Department of Justice agreed, entered into the agreement with the city, and my company was brought in to continue to do the work that, one, we had done as a matter of assessment, but two, also had been engaged to monitor implementation. Next slide, please. The initial implementation covered three years and resulted in three reports, all publicly listed on the department's website. The most significant outcome of that three-year pathway of work was the reduction in the use of force, the training, and frankly, the focus and perspective of the organization and how it addressed use of force incidents. In 2016, Sanctity of Life was an innovative concept for most law enforcement agencies. Today, thankfully, that's not the case, but San Francisco was in the forefront at that time. The city and its department committed to this basic concept. As developing a model policy, it also provided advanced training techniques to its officers that we continue to see to this day. San Francisco is also one of the first departments to engage in crisis intervention training for all recruits and mandatory for supervisors that were promoted. This is important because the connectivity between mental health response and use of force was identified as a result of some of the data analysis that had begun under the early stages of collaborative reform and continues to this day. These actions, um, again, supported by data analysis and informed strategies, have reduced force overall. Disparities continue. There are challenges here, and they continue to exist not only in San Francisco, but in other cities as well. But this early commitment helped this department get ahead of that. Next slide, please. So the current phase really addresses the work that did not finish I'm sorry, could you go back a slide? The current phase addresses the work, those as in the days of the three years of collaborative reform, how many, what number recommendations are done, right? Um, and that continues to be a focus under this phase as well. But what this work is addressing is multi-leveled. 
One, it's grouping recommendations into project plans as they were originally envisioned in terms of scope and focus and strategy. How can the department move forward in those five bucket areas, those five key strategic areas? It also is looking at sustainability. When we closed the level three or phase three back in February 2022, the department had committed and received substantial compliance from the California Department of Justice on a number of recommendations. And so this phase is also going to go back and dip sample some of those recommendations that have been marked as completed and ensure the department is maintaining its commitment to what it said it would do to obtain compliance and that in fact it's moving forward with its commitment to the community. Continue to, thank you. So, when we look at the five project plans, there is a key focus on, as usual, use of force um, and bias. And there's a significant effort underway in terms of a management dashboard within the department. Use of force is important because it translates to less harm, more lives saved, and frankly, helps officers understand and put into context the tool that we, as residents of this, this country, give them in the ability to use force against its own citizens. So for the department currently, they are looking at improving not only the data capture, but the data analysis around use of force. And that information is currently being used to help inform and develop training for officers to one, help them maintain greater safety and visibility, and two, also to ensure that they understand what are those factors that come into play. So by way of example, the department is currently examining uh, recent officer-involved shooting incidents and breaking those down into component parts to identify where and how they can train their officers to better respond, to better identify, and frankly assess risks as it goes forward within the department. The other outcome that we're seeing that is not necessarily a measure of this phase, but is an outcome of an organization focused on improving and um, looking to sustain its reforms are changes in its policies. So um, this department has recently published its de disengagement policy. It is one of the few organizations in the country and probably the only major city, um, as San Francisco is designated, of having such a policy. And so the ability to ensure that officers are not only told as a matter of policy, oh, we want you to disengage, they've actually got straight guidelines and how that occurs. And that becomes important because it becomes part of the education and the focus of the officers as they go forward. The other thing that we're looking at as we go forward is that the goal here is to not only implement the number of recommendations, but also to be able to build upon those concepts of public safety, public accountability, and community input. Next slide, please. The other project plan that I wanted to highlight today, there are two, is one, community policing project plan. So during phase three, um, this thing known as COVID, kind of had a little bit of an impact on the ability to engage and have really thoughtful conversations uh, with the community large. The department really developed a plan and worked to engage, as we all did and learned in digital reality, um, but they didn't make the overall arching goals that they had under the original agreement. And so that continues to be a project plan. Um, the chief's office and the department continue to work on engaging those uh, cross-sectional groups within San Francisco, the neighborhoods, the communities, the advocates, um, to work on those key issues that affect them directly, but then also affect us wholly as a community. Um, the other project plan is one that I think is probably going to be the most interesting 
um, challenging and perhaps the most innovative to come out of this project. And understand that when we look at the level of force decrease in the city, that's pretty innovative as well. But the management dashboard is an undertaking to address and reflect the original findings of the disparity in policing in San Francisco. And so the ability to understand that, get into where it's happening, how it's happening, and a level of detail that will inform strategic analysis is key. Um, this dashboard that's being developed also will bring forward management information that really will allow and inform managers to engage in policing decisions, strategies, both as a matter of crime fighting, but also as personnel management, which is something that you don't really hear too often when we talk about policing. We talk about discipline, but not really developing personnel. And so the department continues to work through this recommendation, or this series of recommendations, um, through a project plan that will also culminate in a personnel performance evaluation. And so the goal there is increased transparency, increased knowledge and awareness, and frankly the ability to translate what is learned through this data into support for operations, such as we've seen with the use of force in the field uh, tactics operations unit. Next slide, please. So as we, as we look at where we are, I mean the issue is that this work's not easy. I wouldn't be here this many years later talking to you about what is going on. Um, and the reality about police reform is that, or even police transformation, because at this point that's really what this is, is that this department is attempting to operationalize the goals that were established in 2016 into the reality today. When we first got here in 2016, um, we were expecting a very far advanced IT system here in Silicon Valley. We didn't find that. And so over time, the department has advanced not only its data collection, but its data appetite. It's able to inform and drive strategies and decisions based on the data that it's now capturing. Um, the other thing that's key to note is the San Francisco Police Department is the only department to have committed voluntarily or of its own accord to engage in this type of a program. Um, nationally, this type of work occurs under generally consent decrees or court-driven oversight. It makes it easier in some ways, right, because the court is holding you to a certain task and you have to do so. Under a self-driven reform, um, you're dealing with day-to-day -day issues, right? You're, you're, you're balancing this demand off of that demand. And the ability to have that long-term view for social and, frankly, criminal justice reform within your organization gets tasked from time to time. When we look at progress, I mean, one of the things I can say is that we, the, the work that has been done here in terms of um, use of force is significant. It really has changed the environment here in San Francisco. Not for everybody and not all the time, but we are seeing improvement. Um, the project plans, really a good management concept and ideally over time continue to be the way that this organization looks at how it approaches things rather than singular issues. What are the linked connections here and how do I link those to help improve where we want to be and how we want to go? I think the management dashboard, truly, um, once, it's, once it's finalized, once it's delivered, will be an opportunity to innovate policing not only here in San Francisco but ideally across the country. And then the idea, the focus on sustainability. This department is attempting to operationalize the concepts of reform into transfer transformation and as part of its daily policing. Now what are the challenges? Resourcing, right? So in that day-to-day -day fight where the department is making its decisions about who goes where and what gets responded to, um, the poles of resourcing are real. And reform and transformation is not organic. It requires focus, it requires data, it requires compliance. Um, without that 
focus, um, you have a tendency to see some slip, and we've seen this in other agencies. IT completion. Uh, I think IT is the bane of most of us, right? But in this case, the management dashboard sends and stands to deliver on a significant number of the recommendations, but it's also the way that the department is um, positioning itself to look forward and how it's managing its people and how it's going to be accountable to the community forward. Timeline. This phase of the project is set to conclude in April of 24. There's a lot of work left to be done. Um, the department has been working on it. Um, progress is there, but it's not quite where we'd like to see it. We'll know more come December, but we anticipate that um, for the most part, with the exception of some of these challenges identified, the department will be successful in achieving its goals under this phase. And then two is the work around policy and how that impacts not only the department and its community. Um, this was an issue that we identified in 2016, and it's an issue that continues today. Uh, for some reason, policy in San Francisco doesn't uh, move in the way that it can and should, even with the revisions. And so those are areas that we will be looking at under this phase and, and reporting on it, as well as trying to identify what might be some potential solutions. Um, next slide, please. And so I'm standing here today, but know that behind this project overall stands the California AG. Um, all of the work here has been vetted, you know, approved and reviewed by the California Department of Justice. And so there is an independent oversight review of this program. Our job here is to not only ensure that we are able to monitor and report and measure on what the department is doing, but also that we're able to provide technical assistance based on the range of experts that we can bring to the table. I think when we talk about San Francisco, there's a couple of things that are you know, distinct here and should be recognized, is that it's internally driven, right? The city and the department went forward, and its success early on was the, the decision to establish a bureau that was in place to ensure that those reforms were measured and implemented throughout the organization. Seven years later, as we stand here today, Every supervisor in this department understands what transformation is, and they are aware of what are the requirements under certain aspects of this uh, reform initiative. It is a collaborative approach. CalDOJ has been here, the community has been here, um, the department is seeking the input of its city stakeholders in ways that it didn't do before, and so that too is progress. It's sometimes painful, but that's the way that policing is improving here in San Francisco. And then finally, the organizational investment has been impressive, both from the perspective of what we saw initially to where it is today. People continue to try to innovate, identify, and address, and assess where they want to be as an organization. And I think that we were just here for a site visit last week, and that was a good takeaway. Um, but in conclusion, what I can say is that reform is not finite. Um, policing has challenges continuously. And an organization and a city that's able to identify those challenges, have a strategy and a framework to address those, and move forward to improve what needs to be improved is critical to success, I think, long term, and is the type of policing that the original report in 2016 was looking for for the communities of San Francisco. Next slide. On that, I open myself to any questions that you may have. Thank you, Ms. Kirby, for that remarkably thorough presentation and update, Supervisor Walton. Thank you so much, President Peskin. Just a clarifying questions, and then most of my questions are for the police department, but 
You stated policy in SF doesn't move like it should. Can you just clarify so I can make sure? Not that I disagree, but. Um, in 2016, what we found was that there wasn't really a smooth process for the development and the generation of policy. Um, in recent, I would say particularly in the last year or so, the department worked to, to draft a new policy um, to allow for the promulgation of general orders, but there seems to be some bumps in the road, and so I think that the efforts that were made to help inform and expedite the process may have some unintended consequences. At this point, we're still looking at it, but there still seems to be challenges that we hear from stakeholders, um, not just within the department, relative to the promulgation of policy. Thank you. Definitely have a question for uh, Department Chief. You know, we, we continue to see a disproportionate amount of police stops and use of force affecting the black community and communities of color. And I know there have been some recent reports of racial data being falsified. So one, what are we doing to address that disproportionality? Because it, it's continued since we've gotten these recommendations. And in some cases, it's gotten worse. What are we doing to address that disproportionality? So one of the things that Ms. Kirby mentioned was this management dashboard that we are in the final stages of, of developing. And this, this dashboard is designed to be a tool to analyze trends, um, stops, trends with stops, trends with uh, communities and officers who work in those communities. So that tool, we believe, will give us an opportunity to, to really dig into this more in terms of really trying to understand what these trends means and what the what the what the causes of them are. Um, you know, disproportionality is is not germane to San Francisco. I mean, this is a this is a nationwide issue that's been longstanding. However, I do believe that some of the things that we have put in place um, have gotten us a little bit further down the road than some departments. For instance, our use of force, even though there's still disparities, when you look at the decline in the race of use of force against uh, African-Americans or, or black uh, members of our, our community, the rate of decline is much steeper than some of the other demographics. So there is progress being made, but there's still a lot to do. The other thing is um, definitely the, the case that you talked about is, is uh, an ongoing investigation, so I can't come in on the specifics of that case. However, we do know that Accurate data is an important part of really getting a better understanding of what's going on with our stops, and so that data has to be accurate. We do have, um, we have to improve some of our systems in that regard, and we believe that the dashboard is one way to get there. However, the other thing is we have to come to grips with the fact that we are dealing with some very challenging issues in our community, and we have to find a way, I'm talking about criminal issues, crime issues, we have to find a way to address the issues, but at the same time be very sensitive to these disparities you talk about. For instance, if there's a certain demographic that we're seeing that is uh, disproportionately high in the offender rate, how can we get at that problem without making this, this disproportionate stop problem worse? Give you a good example. Gun violence. It is traditionally year in and year out a black and brown issue in our city. 
both the offenders and the people that are victims of gun violence are, are largely black and brown. And one of the ways that we are trying to address this is not just address the criminal part of this, but actually this is why we got a, a Salton was approved for a CalBIP grant, is to address some of the root causes and try to get to people before they become a victim or an offender of gun violence. And that is actually working in the areas that we're focusing on. Your district has a reduction in gun violence while the rest of the city is up. So we do believe that that is evidence that we're going in the right direction in terms of being able to impact this problem, not by just law enforcement and search warrants and arrests, but actually try to get to some of the root causes before they get to search warrants and arrests. So that's an example of how we're trying to address this. Um, and I, I can talk about the drug market. You know, there's some disproportionality there. We can talk about some of the other areas of crime, but we have to always stretch ourselves to try to address these issues. Law enforcement is always going to be a part of it. Uh, policing is always going to be a part of it. But what else can we do? And the um, what else can we do is, is really kind of what we're trying to figure out. Well, I'm 150% glad to hear you say what else can we do besides policing to address the systemic issues that lead to poverty and put people in a position to where they would even get to a point where they may commit a crime. So that's great to hear from your department. I would love for you to say, let's make investments elsewhere and stop giving the department so much money so we can have a balance in terms of how we address these issues that are socioeconomic and, to your point, not 100% on the police department. Uh, and, you know, going back, because you also talked about the shootings and where they particularly occur or what demographic they mostly affect. I say this to you all the time. I've said this, and, you know, captains of the station, uh, stations in my district will always say this, but when we talk about distribution of officers and resources, we have more shootings in certain areas in the city, but we don't necessarily police that way. And so that's just something that we continue to bring up, as you know, when we talk about where officers are deployed and, and how they are deployed. But I, I do want to just go back because you mentioned the dashboard too, and this is something that we've heard about you know, even in the last couple of hearings. And so I just want to know when that tool, we think we will see some change because of the tool. And I know there are certain strategies that the commission has approved to try to get to bias and disproportionality, like stopping pretext stops. Where are we right now with, with policies like that that have been supported and we're supposed to move forward? Yeah, the, the traffic stops policy has been passed by the commission, still waiting the final stages of meet and confer, and then it'll be up and running. Um, we have a number of policies that we have put in place as a part of this initiative, our, our policy against bias, our, our um, even our use of force policy. So I, I do believe that we have made some significant progress on our policies and our policy development, but that's an ongoing thing. It's an evolution. You know, what is good for us today may not be good for us five years ago. So part of this process is having systems in place where we don't wait 30 years to address a policy when we know things are going in a different direction. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting that every time the wind blows, we change policies, but there are some times where we have to change policies. So we need to be thoughtful about that. Um, and I, I, I believe that the systems that are in place to do that much more flexibly 
and uh, our adaptability is better than it's been probably ever in this department as far as our ability to, to change our policies when we need to. And just for specifics, how many recommendations have not been completed? 27. What's the drop dead date for completing those recommendations? Well, April, April is when we get our final report and we are going to do everything possible to get those done by April. We have always said that there may be a handful, I think it's about four, that are tied into our technology uh, plans to implement some of our technology. So there probably will be a few that we won't get to, but we're going to do everything in our, in our power to try to get everything done by April with the exception of those. Catherine, do you have? Catherine McGuire, Executive Director of the Strategic Management Bureau. Um, our deadline is April, and then um, Hiller Hines and Cal DOJ have some work to do after that to assess everything. Excuse me. Thank you. Any idea what recommendations are the most difficult that might not be achieved by that timeline? And um, I, I can get the number, but there are some recommendations that are definitely tied to some of our technology uh, needs. and. We are making progress. We have a new uh, records management system coming online. That process is already down the road. Some of what we are talking about today in terms of development of the dashboard, our, uh, our early intervention system, that project is already online with benchmark. So we have made some significant strides in getting us down the road on these, some of these recommendations that tie into technology. Now it's a matter of everything coming together. I know that top-level leadership has doing, been, you know, putting the best foot forward, really, to address these recommendations and try to achieve success and changes and shifts. But I really do just want to say that it continues to be disheartening that we see the level of disproportionality in community, barring specific task force focus on specific types of crimes. There's still bias in, in community. There's still bias of how different neighborhoods get policed and we we got to do something about that understood and we definitely uh, will continue to work you know there are there there's much work to be done i don't agree i don't disagree with you there much work to be done but i do think there's been progress thank you president Peskin. supervisor preston Thank you, President Peskin. Um, I just wanted to follow up on uh, Supervisor Walton's asked briefly about um, the data issue, right? I mean, come back quarterly before the um, police commission, obviously, regularly, but in, in some ways the analysis and the discussion of solutions really depends on the quality of the data that we have, and I think that's something we'd all agree on. So um, I understand for pending things that are under investigation is a limit to what you can comment on. But I, I do want to just briefly touch on like what's out there and because it, it's pretty concerning as we're talking about uh, whether the, in, the data that we see that already shows the disparities that Supervisor Walton has referred to and that we all know persist. But the concern is, is that the kind of the tip of the iceberg or is that the actual disparities? So we know what we're dealing with. So the, my understanding is that DPA investigation found that an officer was um, repeatedly misrepresenting, misreporting the race of people that were stopped and that that officer is facing discipline for that. Sometimes something can be an isolated case. 
That's one thing. I know that when the some veteran reporters, and again, I want to give you a chance to address it because who knows if what you read in a media report is accurate or not, but when they looked at arrest data, they found four other officers where the race reporting appeared, this is Michael Barbara's article, to, in his words, to, to stretch the limits of reality. He points to a sergeant who all but six of the 1,139 stops that this sergeant made, um, supposedly all but six were white people. Like that's kind of inconceivable of 1,139 stops. Um, so I, I guess my, my question is, is to give you an opportunity to kind of address some of these things that have been out there recently, um, what the department is doing to make sure that that data that you're getting back from officers about stops is accurate and whether there are any plans uh, for some kind of audit or closer look um, to see whether there are red flags and to make sure that the data is accurate. Yeah, thank you, uh, Supervisor Preston. So uh, again, definitely this issue with the sergeant uh, from that news article, I cannot validate whether that's with merit or without merit, but what I can say is those, that the whole data issue for us is an important issue and one of the things that we that we do is you know, spot check and make sure that the data is getting entered as it should. Uh, there is more work that we need to do and we will do in terms of digging deeper into this process of, of of at least inspecting. Um, I will say a little bit about the, the system that this data, we're talking about the, the, the Cal DOJ you know, stops data system that this information is entered into and it's based on the officer's perceptions, which leaves some room for interpretation. Uh, that's about as far as I can say in terms of these cases that you cited, but I will say is when we, when we report data on, on perceived race, there are some, some, some variances there that unable to be reconciled because it's based on what the officer perceives, not the actual race of, of the person, actual race. So there are some, some differences there, uh, and this is not just an issue in the city of San Francisco. I've, talk to some of the people from the state of California who, who look at this stuff, who are on these committees at uh, the RIPA committee, and this is, this is a wider spread issue, so that doesn't make it any less of an issue for us to tackle. We still have to tackle that issue, but the bottom line is we have to, we have to increase the level of at least the spot inspections to see if we can detect if that is in fact something that needs to be looked deeper into when we see these anomalies. And so that's about as much as I can tell you if, as far as that newspaper article, but definitely it's something that we're committed to doing. Thank you. And, and just to clarify, prior to whatever's going to happen going forward, was there any effort to spot check or was the level of inquiry just to see if the, if the basically if the fields were marked? You know, in other words, if, if the report was completed versus not completed uh, yeah. versus the kind of analysis that would detect, yes, there's a pattern here where the officer's checking every box or, or is 
you know, only checking a certain race for everything? Like, was there any spot checking or audit process occurring? So the, the, the process was more of completion of the data, making sure that everything was completed, making sure that things were done. Um, again, we have to go deeper into this because now we have an issue that really merits us going deeper. So that's, that's our commitment. Thank you, Chief. I appreciate that. And, and I just, uh, one other question on this. Um, one concern is this issue, kind of auditing the, the, the reporting of the data in itself is part of recommendations, right? And, and DOJ, I know, warned um, back about seven years ago to, to, um, to watch for officers who might be misreporting the race of drivers who are pulled over. So this, the, the, the caution and the sort of warnings on this have been longstanding uh, from the, the DOJ. And there are some findings, um, specifically 77 and 77.2, that are around saying that the de department should develop an audit, audit work plan uh, on the stop data. Um, so, and I, I know, I don't want to get into, I know this was discussed at a police commission hearing recently and that there is, there is a, an, a unit order on this, but I think what's in question is whether SFPD has been following through on the commitments in that order. And I think where I want to just kind of end on this with a question is just whether it's your sense or our consultant, just whether we're at risk on those, um, that DOJ could update the findings on specifically on the the audit issues that that I think had previously been reported as we're in substantial compliance and now I'm wondering if we're actually not or whether we're sufficiently addressing that where we're confident that 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 will remain as a substantial compliance item. So part so part of uh, the finding, there was some language that that we needed to staff this unit in order to do the very things that you talked about. Uh, that unit has not been adequately staffed. I, I will say that is our challenge and we're gonna have to figure out a way to make that happen uh, in terms of staffing because it does take people to do these types of audits that takes, you know, we have uh, particularly of late, we had to send people back to patrol so we can staff our patrol cars. Some of the officers that were assigned to professional standards have been sent back to patrol uh, in the last you know, couple of years. So we have to find a way to do it. Uh, and that's our commitment and we will figure it out and find a way to do it. But it is a staffing issue. And that was one of the contingencies on the substantial compliance that we staffed this so we can sustain this uh, substantial compliance. So are, are we at risk of that finding changing or, or are you confident that we're gonna be able to staff that in a way that's satisfactory on that? I'm confident that we'll be able to fix the problem. You know, we have to then sustain it. So, you know, we, we are quite good at moving officers around to fix, you know, temporary problems, but this whole body of work is about sustainability and, you know, this work never should end. You know, we get found in substantial compliance and many departments have slid backwards in their efforts to evolve their policing and reform. We don't want to be that department. So yes, we will commit. We just still have some work to do to figure out how we're gonna sustain this over time. 
thank you. And I just want to say that I, I appreciate the commitment to, to more, more proactive uh, auditing going forward. And, and I just want to reiterate that it's, it's like the racial disparities are already troublesome enough and alarming enough, and they persist despite uh, com substantial compliance with so many of the recommendations. Um, we really need to get a handle on whether any misreporting issues are a handful of isolated cases or are more systematic, because it may be uh, that, that those numbers may be significantly worse or not, and we don't know. Uh, and so I think the sooner we can, we can get to the bottom of that, the better. But thank you for thank you, your Supervisor. answers. Thank you, Supervisor President. Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, President Peskin. Um, my question is for uh, Deborah Kirby, and I also just wanted to start by expressing my appreciation to um, Jensen Hughes and Heather Hines and uh, the California Department of Justice. I think they probably don't get um, enough gratitude. We were back when the Trump administration pulled the plug on the, the partnership that started in the Obama administration with the U.S. Department of Justice. Um, it, it, the State Department of Justice didn't have to be a partner, um, but they stepped up and they did, and I think that was incredibly important. One thing that it occurs to me um, is remarkable about this is that we're seven years after a report and still talking about it. And I have spent most of my career in this building, and I have seen a lot of reports and a lot of studies and a lot of, you know, I think we are now in year 20 of the 10-year plan to end homelessness. Um, and you know, you, I am impressed by, this, by the commitment to sustainability. Um, so above and beyond just the specific issues, as a consultant, what do you think is enabling us to continue talking about this in a way that we are keeping everybody honest, making real progress on something, and this is not a report that is just gathering dust on a shelf some, some, somewhere, but we are actually making progress on it and committing to keep reform sustained. Is it, for example, having an outside consultant? Is that something we should be doing? Is it having a DOJ kind of partner on other kinds of issues that we're going to be multi-year things, or is it, you know, having a, a committee of the whole hearing periodically, or maybe all of these things? If I could state this, is that I think truly the unique aspect here in San Francisco is that this was self-driven. Um, I think the evolution and leadership in the organization, and that's not to say that there weren't good leaders in place in 2016, but what we've seen over the last seven years is the ability to look at the issues differently. It's not necessarily an attack or we're doing everything right. Um, it's really you're starting to see how do we improve what we're currently doing. And that is a big pivot. Like even independent of you know, collaborative reform, the policies that the chief is referencing, right? Um, the fact that you don't issue mugshots, the anti-bias, the pretext stop, those are all evolutionary outcomes of an organization that is committed to improving itself. Um, I also think that the community here is sufficiently engaged that it holds the department to, to account um, and that you know, this council, the police commission, the DPA are all sufficiently um, ingrained and that that level of conversation continues to happen. Um, but I also identify that this project initially looked at the five key areas that challenge policing continuously. And any organization that wants to provide service to its community improves is struggling with those. And I think really the change that you see here 
is, um, you know, in part to Chief Scott, is that, and I'm not always nice to him, um, but his ability to stand and say, okay, how do we fix this? How do we move this forward? And what I've seen increasingly over the last five years is an organization that as a whole is looking at that and saying, how do we do this, rather than it's something being done to us. Can I ask, is, has it been... Has it been influential? Because I, I was, you know, as I think most of you know, I spent two years in the police department before my current job. I was a civilian member of the command staff. Um, I recall that when George Floyd was murdered, there was only two cities among the top 100 that had enacted all eight of the eight can't wait uh, use of force reforms that Campaign Zero was... Um, advocating for by my count i think we're up to 10 of the 100 top 100 cities 50 uh, have adopted all eight i think 12 or another 12 are on the way um has this process been influential and is there any other cities pursuing something like this um i think again the department has made the commitment to do that i believe that collaborative reform helped um, there was a little bit of pushing a little bit of embracing but what we saw in 20, this was first passed in 2017, and now in 2023, is that the department is moving forward on what I believe to be innovative policies, independent of like collaborative reform, you know, having a recommendation and a measurement on it. it, it it's the continued improvement, um, which is something that uh, you know will be emblazoned on the wall somewhere at headquarters. Is the continuous improvement loop because. That's really what we're seeing. For me as a consultant, I'm in a lot of cities. I, you know, I spent 28 years with the Chicago Police Department. This is the stuff that really um, brings passion to our team and that we really enjoy doing this work. It's not easy. Um, you're dealing with day-to-day -day issues and you're still trying to look at that long game and you're dealing with over 1,400 individual decisions on any day. And so it's, um, it's complex, um, but the organizational strategy and the framework and frankly the way that it's being integrated and was built into SFPD I think is part of where you are today on this. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Why don't we go to public comment? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Those of you who are in the chamber, please come on to your right-hand side of the chamber and line up. Terry Field. Is this you? Yes, this is a public comment on the uh, recommendations for improvement. Sure. Please, uh, the police has to do the same as everybody, is to realize that there is an emotional disorder that prevent us, prevents us to do the proper thing. It's reduced our ability to, be, to act intelligently. It affects our consciousness. So you can't protect yourself without a consciousness. So if you affect your ability to be intelligent, you affect your possibility to just be in the future. You can't be. So you have to absolutely understand this. So we need to reduce the level of emotional disorder in order to do the right thing for us, everybody, the police or is this or that. It's absolutely important. Otherwise, you have just no future at all. So I don't know, even know why you, it's not your focus right now. So to the chief, I say, hi, chief. I know you are stuck, but you cannot follow what you have been told to do today. It's bound 
to fail. There is no future for it, absolutely none, it's soon. The future is with technology, but entirely redefined to be useful for us to raise our level of consciousness, to be sure that we don't self-destroy. Are you following? I'm not sure. I'm sure you are not, actually, because you are too deep in your emotional disorder. But that's the thing you need to work on, with responsibility, understanding, in order not to be done and not be back. Thank you for your comments. Good afternoon. My name is Jordan. My pronouns are she, her, they, them. Let's cut to the chase. This police reform hearing is other fucking bullshit and political masturbation to put a nicer face on carceral systems when we could be spending that money on basic needs so we can have real public safety without cops. And all that reform that you're all yapping about did not prevent cops from using brutal fucking force at the Hill bomb in July. Black Lives Matter, defund the police. All cops are buttheads. I yield my time. Fuck you. Are there any other speakers in the chamber? Please, okay. Seeing no other speakers in the chamber, we're going to go to the remote call in. Oh, please come on up. Uh, I just wanted to thank the police department uh, publicly. Uh, like a month, or I want to say like a month ago, there was uh, someone that uh, allegedly. Can you speak a, closer into that? Sorry, mic, someone thanks. has like a gun, uh, allegedly had a gun at near Mission PD. Uh, uh, the incident was stopped when uh, by SFPD when they shot, uh, like blew out the rear window of of the car that the uh, suspect was uh, sheltered in, and that was like the only thing that happened. Didn't really reach the news at all, but you know, thank you so much for that. You know, that's like a great show of use force, and you know, it would have been devastating for anything to have happened to Mission PD. You know, I'm always on shrooms in Dolores Park. I don't know what would happen, have happened to me. Anyways, happy sober October. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Okay, I was going to be a cop when I was uh, young because I wanted to get the criminals off of the streets, and it's a very tough job. It's as hard as hard could be. Uh, it's probably as hard as uh, being the president. It really is because you got the uh, communists that want to under, undermine their authority, and you've got just problem after problem after problem. And we should consider what the Bible says about authority, okay? In Romans 13, it talks about authority being established by God. Romans 13. Remember when Paul wrote this, it was under Nero. He stood for, before Nero. Nobody stood with him, not even one Christian, you know, not even one. That was sad. But Nero ate his own mother, they say. He, he uh, well, I guess the supervisor Sir, there would say he practiced gender-affirming surgery on a boy he married. But the point I'm making is it was context of Romans 13 was... was uh, Nero was in charge, okay, and Paul did not teach that Christians are to be chaotic, and so that's why I'm saying that we should consider what God has to say in the Holy Bible, and in Romans 13, I sometimes tell cops this, I say, do you know you're a minister of God, even if they're not a Christian, in the sense that what, what is their duty? Well, the moral obligation of government is to protect the people, right? I was reading about Paul and how you know, one of the kings, Festus, I think, or Felix, uh, said it's not the manner of the Romans to... Uh, you know, kill anyone unless he has answer, you know, the right to answer for himself. Unlike, you know, what they're doing to President Trump, they were trying to put a gag order on him. But the point is, is uh, they're called a minister of God uh, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. 
a minister of God to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So it's important for Have us to consider it. your comments to the law enforcement recommendations, please. Well, I'm, I'm getting there, but I, 13 seconds, how am I going to wind that up? Uh, okay. Whatever. All right. Well, thank you, Mark, please, for your comments. Please read the Bible. Let's really, we, we've got to read the Bible. Okay, let's hear from our next speaker, please. Come on up. I don't know if uh, there's a direct connection between our governance and the governance in Nero's time, but I, I think we have made some progress since that time. All right, thank you. Any other uh, members of the public would like to address the board on the law enforcement recommendations? All right, seeing none, Mr. President. Let's go to remote public comment. Okay, let's hear from our first caller in the queue, please. Hello, good afternoon. Hope to greet everyone as well. Um, wow, this is actually interesting. So how to engage with another individual? So from the police department's perspective, their training is flawed, big time flawed. Um, the foundation of this country's laws are based on the Constitution, if anybody didn't know that. So the Constitution has rights mainly for the people. One of those rights is actually not to speak. What that means is that when somebody engages you on the street, you do not have to engage with them. Um, in, in determining what somebody's race is, they actually don't have to tell you. You do not even have to answer one word. You could call it your mother, your attorney, your friend, whomever it may be. We don't want that to happen. What we want to do is bridge the gap. How do you do that? You engage with the community by outreach. How do you outreach? You invite the community to events. You work with them. You educate the community on what their rights are. So you have these, I don't know, maybe conferences or get-togethers, workshops on the Constitution, the law of the land. So we sent over a couple of the emails about the Constitution. Uh, I think the supervisors and the police should take the lead on that and outreach to the community. Really hope it helps, but I really think that's the way to engage. Thank you for your comments. Let's hear from our next speaker, please. Madam Clerk, that was the last caller in okay, the queue. Thank you. Public thank you. comment is closed. And seeing no additional names on the roster, thank you to the SFPD. Uh, and this matter is heard and filed. Madam Clerk, let's go back to roll call for, no, I think we've concluded roll call for completed. introductions. Let's go to general public comment. General public comment. All right, let's hear from our first speaker, please. Welcome. Okay, so, uh, yes. Today is October the 3rd, it's an important day. Tomorrow, I just advise you to uh, stay away from your cell phone. It's my advice, okay? From 11 a.m. to whatever. I'm talking there. The future, it's easy to understand, I hope. The future belongs to people who understand the, the, the origin of their emotional disorder, which comes from a bad education. It's a wrong education that makes you misinterpret what reality is. So you pay attention. So you have an emotional disorder that affects your intelligence because intelligence works with emotions. Okay, us as human beings, because we don't have a predator, animal predator above us, we need a consciousness. Consciousness, that's the reason for being of consciousness is to self-protect yourself, okay? 
against destruction because you need, in order to evolve, you need the vision of a predator above you. That's why you have a consciousness. Now, if you affect your consciousness, it means that you can definitely self-destroy. So you have to pay attention to this very fact. I finish with something. You pay attention again, if you want a future at all. Otherwise, you are done and you won't be back and your children will pay for you until it's set. You need to own yourself, okay? You own yourself as an individual. When you own yourself, you prevent anything or anybody coming with something that affects your reason for owning yourself, which is happiness, your reason for being. You use beauty, etc. okay? So you prevent everybody to come, anybody to come towards you with basically ugliness. That's your thing. So you own yourself and you pass the words. Everybody ends up happy, it's guaranteed. Next speaker, please. Okay, Jesus said, for this I say unto you, that that which is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was numbered among the transgressors, the criminals. He took our place. Okay? Now this ought to convert everyone, especially the Jews. And why all the Jews are not Christians, they must, must not be paying attention because this is what it says. Mark, Who that is not within the board subject matter jurisdiction. That is not. Well. Your time okay. is ticking. Okay, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. This is what Jesus referred to. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow. Think about what you just heard, okay? Psalm 22, that's another good one. Psalm 22, Jesus quoted it on the cross. All right, let's hear from our next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name's uh, Chris Warkline, and I wanted to talk. I was at the committee meeting for public safety and wasn't able to speak because I had other commitments. But I wanted to talk about the use of stingrays. And here I have a public document, public, uh, free, uh, public release, the San Francisco police acquiring this technology that everybody thinks is really top secret, classified, but it's not. You want to solve your overdose problems? You get a handle on the people that have credentials to this, the Stingray, and you're going to find out it's London Breed and Matt Haney and others in this room. You could fix the overdose problem. You could have it under 100 per year 
if you would just stop cyber-stalking citizens of your own city and county. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. My name is Namdev Sharma. I'm speaking on the behalf of Purchase Taxi Medallion Holders. Believe me, we were not taxi driver before in our countries. Some circumstances made us to be taxi drivers. MTA exaggerate their surveys about our income, which is absurd. Without TCP, you must enforce rideshare to pick up airport passenger at long-term parking, San Bruno City. You must require TCP permit for every rideshare vehicle to pick up at airport. New York City improved taxi business, reduced price of medallion to $200,000, no more $1 million, and bailed out taxi driver paid off their loans. None of the rideshare vehicle allowed to drive without TLC in New York City and airport. We are bleeding to death. We are not stupid. We understand everything. And we understand assembly gimmick strategy. You created this mess. Please bail us out of medallion payments. Please clean up this mess. Try to be nice to us. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Good afternoon. My name is Ali Asker, Medallion 1225. You know, we just come here, and we've been coming for years, and you guys know the situation. And I mean, like, for God's sake, make a decision and get us out. We're just asking, be fair with us, because we are working and we're not paying off. And I mean, like, it's, I don't want to keep repeating that thing. We just want to request you to please help us somehow at least we could make some money to take some money to table for our kids and our families and our bills and our, all these things. So I just don't want to keep repeating. It's just really embarrassing me, but please help us. We need your help. That's why we come here and uh, requesting to please help us out and get us out of that road. When, when will be that day when we'll say, yeah, we got to fix our problem. We're walking with misery. We're talking with misery. We're sitting, when we go from here, my call, my wife, what happened? Nothing. We just went, we talked two minutes, we come back. That didn't do nothing. That's what been happening for years. And I, I don't know. This is a beautiful country and it's a great place to provide the justice to everybody. So why are we being punished, being not getting justice? We're just stuck there for hours. If the taxi goes 50, Uber goes 700. It doesn't matter, but we need, we need, we were spoiled of the city. We get the reward of the city when we work here, we go, and then the, the hotel, they give us water, they give us candy, they give us Pepsi, and we get rewarded from you, give us a free medallion. But after all these things, we, I don't understand what did we do wrong to make you angry so you're not coming that close to make that decision for us. We're loyal. We've been loyal and we will be loyal. But we need to think of that, what is going on with us, please, for God's sake. Thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, welcome. Hello, my name is Leah McKeever. I live in D6. Um, I am here to talk about the resolution passed unanimously by this board earlier this year. 
uh, file 230326, Protection of Transgender and Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Queer Youth and Adults. Um, I'm just genuinely not sure if everyone read it here. Um, if you've talked to your friends and family and communities since uh, passing this um, about transgender people, uh, educated yourself, just anything. So I thought, why not read it to you so that I have peace of mind that you have at least heard it, if not read it yourself, because I just, I really don't know. Resolution urging elected representatives, schools, and youth-serving institutions in San Francisco and other jurisdictions to protect transgender and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer youth and adults' lives and gender expression from hate and violence amid national legislative efforts to roll back transgender and LGB, LGBTQ plus protections. Whereas in 2022, the country witnessed unprecedented levels of extremist, right-wing, transphobic, and queerphobic rhetoric and violence across the United States. And whereas elected officials and candidates across the nation have espoused extremist rhetoric to promote their political platforms founded on hatred, intention of harm, and the scapegoating of transgender and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer people. And whereas San Francisco is a vibrant hub of queer culture for local residents, a destination for visitors from across the United States and around the world, and a globally recognized source of inspiration for resistance, freedom, and respect for transgender and LGB plus people. Um, I'll be back to continue next time. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Welcome. I'm back again. My name is Jordan Davis. She, her, they, them. First, public comment should not be for fucking Bible study. Second, fuck the Blue Angels. Also, fuck Italian Heritage Month. Even though I'm Italian from the Jersey Shore, I think this is a white supremacist holiday. Next, fuck the Nazis who called in last week. They are brain-dead incels who lived in their mommy and daddy's basement listening to second wave and second-rate black metal, and they'll never have a life, and Angela was right to cut them off. But we should not let oppressive language lead to oppressive policies. So I strenuously fucking oppose President Peskin's motion to limit public co remote public comment, which harms disabled and working-class people. Fuck reasonable accommodations. We need universal design. Finally, I have a policy of not mourning any politician of any party who, mar who harms poor, working class, and other marginalized communities. Thus, I'm not going to cry that DiFi went bye-bye. And let's talk about a real legacy on doing police reform, displacing Filipinos at I-Hotel, vetoing vacancy control and indirectly causing costs to Hawkins, monocrop office economies, flying the Confederate flag and trying to punish Richard Bradley for taking it down, vetoing domestic partnerships, opposing single-payer, supporting domestic spying, supporting the war in Iraq, making kids cry when they demand a Green New Deal, and of course, creating a tradition of D2 having shitty supervisors. I would rather have single-payer, a livable parent planet, and vacancy control than cable cars. She is probably hugging Dan White in the afterlife like she hugged Republicans, if there is an afterlife. I yield my time. Fuck you. Let's hear from our next speaker, please. Good afternoon, board. As sure a lot of you know me by now, my name is Jay Connor B. Ortega, and I'm co-president of Iconic D3. I also want to take this time to thank SFPD for all the work they do, both seen and unseen. A lot of us who aren't victims of crime take it for granted, but when we become victims of crime, we understand why they exist. 
Supervisors Preston, Walton, Ronan, Peskin, and Chan, the laundry list of soup, uh, soup city destroyers, not only believe criminals have the right to destroy the hard work of our residents, but they now want to prevent hired guards from protecting the hard work of our residences. The question that is asked is, should an armed guard be allowed to defend private property? The question that should be asked is, does a store have a right to defend their hard-earned livelihood? In District 1, a shop owner was killed. In Districts 2, 3, and 6 are seeing businesses shut down, both big and small. Target, Banana Republic, Wicked Grounds, Nordstrom, and so many more and counting. Now, adding to the list of destruction is a donut shop who was robbed by two gunmen. The donut shop will have to pay for all the damages themselves and still maintain their business or, like others, shut down, leaving San Francisco like the others. I'm encouraging the remaining supervisors not named to not sign on to the proposed alteration that would accelerate the destruction of San Francisco. If the board does not stand with shops, the residents will. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hello, I would like to join the supervisors in the memoriam for Diane Feinstein. When I heard the news on Friday, I was in shock. I, was, I had assumed that the late center would both live and serve forever. So robust and such a brilliant orator was she. Thank you supervisors for the beautiful floral arrangement and genuine heartfelt words. I am positive she is both hearing and understanding these words from Jewish heaven. In true San Francisco fashion, the late senator was a savvy politician who rose to power after the untimely death of a mayor, and I think this event guided her throughout her career in preserving and defending the crucial civil rights of our most vulnerable population, incumbent politicians. I think the president said it best when he said that Mrs. Feinstein genuinely believed she was still the mayor of San Francisco <laughs> to her very last day. I actually met the senator two years, in, two years ago in Sacramento. Uh, she regaled me with a story of how, while visiting, uh, uh, well, how she and actor Tom Cruise personally executed Osama bin Laden on the deck of an aircraft carrier before staff, her staffers rolled her away. Whether it was telling children that nothing can be done about climate change or, or sandbagging the investigations about <laughs> into enhanced interrogation techniques. She was deeply compromised. Excuse me, she was a deep compromiser, <laughs> uh, emblematic of how deeply dysfunctional uh, and fair our democracy is. My condolences go out to her family and I wish them luck in, entangling, in disentangling her estate from our nation's black budget. And I hope the other great girl boss politicians follow her lead by dying in office. Thank you. Thank you so much for your comments. Next speaker. Good evening, supervisors. This is Ace on the case. Uh, my condolences to uh, uh, Feinstein, the first female mayor, but we still got our first black female mayor. They both got an office similar because of death of the, the mayors and they was the presidents. So anyway, what I'm here to talk about is reparations. I'm gonna try to do it each of your board members, I think you supported the uh, recommendations, but I want to know individually, so are y'all supporting the, the funding? And I'm going to find out from the mayor if she's supporting the funding. She's telling me it's got to come from the federal 
system. Also, I want to talk about Yoshi's, the edition, Western edition. Uh, bottom line, they use the reparations as saying, well, we need to fund that through reparations. You're right, because that building is ours. It belongs to us in the Fillmore, without a doubt. And I'm trying to find who of the people of the uh, select committee, the the uh, people that's supposed to find out what's going on because I don't, last time they did it, when the select committee submitted it, they pulled it back and they said it, 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 it wasn't viable. So I'm trying to find out for the sake of me, I'm the Fillmore Corridor Ambassador, damn it. I've been in the Fillmore all these years. I was involved last time they did the, repar I mean, the uh, RFP uh, in uh, 19, uh, no, 2018, they rejected it. So I want to know what's happening, what are the process, and if I can't get it through y'all's board of super, I'm going to have to go through the Sunshine Act and have sunshine on the act. Uh, them. them. <laughs> Excuse me, my name is Ace, I'm on the case. But I'm trying to figure out what's happening with reparations and the Yoshi's building. And giving my respect to Diane Feinstein, uh, I didn't know her personally, but I came involved right after that. So my name is Ace, I'm on the case, and thank you very much. My time should be up right about now. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Ace. Next speaker. My name is Otto Duffy, and uh, I, I came here at the tail end of the Alioto administration. I, Ronald Reagan was still governor. Diane Feinstein was sitting in one of these chairs. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> um, I think it is it is all right to place a person in their time and and the the successes that they had in their time and for Diane Feinstein I'm particularly fond of people who have managed to lose an election which is a very difficult thing for a politician and yet yet continue on with their career and I actually think there's a few people in this room that have lost an election um, it, it's perhaps it's just a factor of my aging, but I, I do think that we have made some improvements in policing and all sorts of things, trying to have a more multicultural society, uh, 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 and pluralistic multicultural society. I think we have advanced on that, and it's it's a long, you know, if you look at it at the long period of time, there have been improvements. Um, thank you. So I so I, I also appreciate Jordan's comments as well. Thank you, Otto Duffy, for your comments. Any other speakers in the chamber? Okay. All right, welcome, Charles. Happen 
This looks like a strong arm robbery with weapon charges. The lady's trying to retrieve her property, but they're uh, obstructing her. DPW is grotesquely violent. Where's the legislation? You're supposed to be Board of Supervisors. Where's the legislation to protect the citizens from the violence that your employees are committing? Um, it's totally immoral. When do we get to legislation? Thank you, Charles. Any other members of the public to address the board during general public comment? Seeing no one jump up. Go to remote okay. public comment. All right, let's hear from our first speaker. I will just state that any speaker's comments who violate the city's policy on discriminatory or harassing remarks, we will move on to another caller. All right, let's hear from our first caller, please. Welcome, caller. Hey, how's it going? Hello, hello. Yeah, so it's San Francisco here. Um, so a few things here. So the definition of leadership is really acting as a leader, leading a group or individual organization. A leader is really somebody who takes control of situations such as a uh, crisis, medical health crisis, such as fentanyl, also taking care of the family. If you're a matriarch in the family, if you're the eldest um, child, Definitely take charge, get POA, whatever you do. Some of us have elderly adults, uh, elderly parents that need care, and we need to really take charge. So leader, leadership, and all of you guys were voted for by um, the taxpaying community to be leaders, and really haven't seen anyone step up and address the, the crises that, that plague the city. I mean, the biggest one, obviously, being the Sentinel, the September numbers haven't come up, but the rapes are up. The homicides are, well, I think 40 homicides still, but we need to really focus on leadership. We need to focus on the mental ill. And uh, if you guys don't want to leave, you could just leave. I mean, we, we really need to get this done because the city, from what, I'm, from what we're hearing, is really going down the drains. So I really want to focus on how you guys are going to do this, what your plans are, how you're going to tackle the issues, and uh, again, get the city back to normal. The uh, closures of the stores are still down, and the the violence is still up. So, um, and the respect for 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 the community, for the police, and the respect for the police on the community is, you know, it's atrocious. So, you know, I really want to see you guys take charge. If you can, we can we can find others. Thanks. All right. Thanks for your comments. Let's hear from our next caller, please. Welcome, caller. Thank you. My, my name is Timothy Allen Simon. I'm a native San Franciscan. I represent the Candlestick Park, excuse me, Candlestick Heights Community Alliance. 
uh, we're the shoreline community uh, overlooking uh, the Candlestick State Recreation Area. And in District 10, we're the only district at this time that has a vehicle triage center. And over half, as reported, over half of those housed and vehicles Sir, are currently Sir, I'm, I'm pausing your time. I'm pausing your time. That item was a committee report that came from committee. It is currently before the board. Uh, the board voted on that item. It is not available for uh, a public comment today. Apologies to you. If you wanted to submit something to us, we, we would receive that and make sure all board members received it, but it is not eligible for your public comment. Thank you. For all right, thank you. Thank you. All right, let's hear from uh, next caller, please. Thank you, Cork Angela, Joe Kunzler here. I know we are all in grief the passing of forever supervisor, Diane Feinstein, undeniably an exemplary leader of leaders who defended and taught so many leaders, including my followers, Supervisor Catherine Maverick Stephanie. However, as the Top Gun movie goes, there is work to be done. Some of us have to immediately apply for our grief. We have a crisis situation with motion 2 minutes has elapsed. Thank you for your comments. Uh, let's go to our next caller, please. Hello, caller. Are you with us? Hi there. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Welcome. Thank you, Clerk. Uh, hi, President Peskin and Supervisor Luke Bornheimer. I want to thank Supervisor Preston again for his resolution urging SFMTA to implement a citywide no turn on red policy and urge you to co-sponsor support the resolution today. Allowing turns on red is an outdated policy that makes streets more dangerous and stressful for people. No turn on red is proven to increase safety for all people, especially children, seniors, and people with disabilities, but also for drivers. Implementing a citywide no turn on red policy will make it safer, easier, and more comfortable for people to cross the street. In addition to making our streets safer, and more predictable for drivers. 
I urge you to support Supervisor Preston's resolution today and thank those of you who are willing to co-sponsor the resolution. Separately, I want to thank Supervisor Melgar for her call for a hearing on intersection daylighting and urge you to co-sponsor and support her call. Intersection daylighting, which is currently implemented in San Francisco, increases visibility at intersections and significantly increases safety for people, especially children, seniors, and people with disabilities. While cities around the country have 30 to 50 feet of daylighting, SFMTA has no citywide daylighting policy, and when the agency does implement daylighting, most commonly implements only 10 feet of daylighting. The result is more dangerous and stressful streets, including for car drivers. SFMTA should implement a citywide policy for at least 30 feet of daylighting for every crosswalk, marked or unmarked, in the city. Unfortunately, the agency has failed to implement daylighting quickly and effectively enough and needs to be pushed to do that. I urge you to support Supervisor Melgar's call for a hearing, as well as to introduce a resolution urging SFMTA to implement at least 30 feet of daylighting for every crosswalk in the city. Thank you. Thank you, Luke Bornheimer, for your comments. All right, let's hear from our next caller, please. Madam Clerk, that was the last caller in the queue. Thank you, Mr. President. Public comment is closed. Colleagues, uh, at the request of Supervisor Walton, rather than filing item 33 that we heard earlier, there is a request to continue that item to May 21st, 2024. Is there a motion to rescind our previous action made by Supervisor Walton, seconded by Supervisor Ronan? We will take that without objection and we will continue the item to May 21st, 2024. That was the uh, hearing with the police department on the United States Department of Justice's recommendations without objection. That will be the order. Madam Clerk, would you please read the adoption without committee reference calendar? Yes, items 37 through 40 uh, were adopted without uh, adoption, were adopted without reference to committee. Uh, if a member would like to send one item that is on first reading to committee, they could. Otherwise, we'll take a roll call vote. Would any member or member like an item or items severed? Seeing none, a roll call, please. On items 37 through 40, Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safayi. Safayi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, aye. Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. And Supervisor Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. There are 11 ayes. Those resolutions are adopted. Madam Clerk, would you please read the immemoria? Yes, today's meeting will be adjourned in memory of the following beloved individuals on behalf of Supervisor Safai for the late Mr. Artist Cooper Jr., on behalf of Super Supervisor Peskin for the late Tim Figueres, uh, at the suggestion and a motion made by Supervisor Peskin to be on behalf of the entire Board of Supervisors for the late U.S. Senator, the Honorable Diane Feinstein. We are adjourned. <laughs>